Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings. Today is Tuesday, October 25. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer. Welcome to our weekly market update. We're focusing on China this week after the 20th Congress of the Communist Party in Beijing. And so I'm joined by Richard Tang, our head of Hong Kong research and China strategist who knows much more about China, as his title implies. Hello, Richard. Hello, Mark. Richard, I'd like to start by asking you to summarize the Congress. And I guess starting from the speech that President Xi made at the opening to the unveiling of the new leadership on Sunday, Is it a continuation of the last five years, or is it going to be something different? Well, Mark, President Xi Jinping talked a lot more politics and ideology this time and less about the economy. In fact, some analysts have done an interesting study to compare the speeches by President Xi Jinping this year versus five years ago, basically just to do a word count on the key terms in the two reports and compare the frequency. That is interesting. What did they find out, Richard? Well, it reviews some interesting insights for sure, in which words like modernization, security, or people, basically those words that are more related to ideology or politics in general, they have increased in frequency. But on the other hand, the counts in reform, economy, and market have fallen. And it looks like this apparent change in the policy focus has concerned some foreign investors based on our initial conversations with them. Sounds like the word they're concerned about is security. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, clearly the priority of security has been elevated. China would put more emphasis on national security in the next five years. So that includes food security, energy security, and supply chain security. And I think it makes sense because the heightened geopolitical tension indeed puts some of these at risk. So I'll give you an example, Mark. Biden administration just expanded its ban on semiconductors and semiconductor equipment, and they apply it on now a much broader range of high-end applications, which may indeed slow down the technological advancement of some industries in China. And those could be artificial intelligence or even autonomous driving. So to be fair, some of these changes are actually responding to the changes in the global environment. Richard, one of the words that you mentioned in the word count that the analysts have done is modernization. I think the term that's used is actually which is Chinese modernization. And I want to quote from President Xi's opening report. So I'm going to quote right now. That is to build China into a great modern socialist country that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, harmonious, and beautiful from 2035 through the middle of this century. Can you translate uh, that for us? What does that mean? Yeah, sure. That sounds vague, right? (laughs) Chinese modernization is the vision that President Xi Jinping has on the country. And the official line, Mark, that you just read out covers quite a few areas. But in particular, he differentiates Chinese modernization from the Western one, uh, which in my view is dominated by capitalism. So I think common prosperity will be the basic principle that the government will follow when it rolls out policies in the next five to 10 years. And for example, in his opening report, President Xi Jinping has pledged to regulate the order of income distribution and the mechanism of wealth accumulation. And as you may recall, uh, Premier Li Keqiang once mentioned that there are 600 million people 
I repeat, 600 million people in this country that earn less than a thousand RMB per month. So the income disparity is so large in China that it now has to be addressed. And frankly, I will not be surprised if there will be some tax reforms. Simply, that is normally what policymakers will first think of when it comes to social welfare and income redistribution. Well, you know, six hundred million is almost half of the total population, isn't it? Total population one point four. So that's a lot of people to be living basically below the poverty line. I have to admit that reminds me a little bit of the three R's of Franklin Roosevelt, his New Deal back in the nineteen thirties: relief for the unemployed and the poor, recovery of the economy. And the last R was reform of the financial system. And by the way, most business people back then in the 1930s did not like Franklin Roosevelt or his policies very much because they thought they were hostile to business and hostile to economic growth. And and I have to admit, the New Deal did end up giving the federal government a key role in economic and social affairs, really right up until Reagan in the 1980s. I don't know if that sounds similar to you at all. Yeah, that doesn't sound very dissimilar. But I guess for China, the objective is simple. That is to raise the purchasing power of those six hundred million poor people, either by making them to earn higher incomes or giving them a bit of subsidies. So, to investors, I think the clear beneficiary in the market from these policies will be the mass consumption stocks, and they will be milk, they will be beer, household supplies, or even sportswear. Now, but the other point that I do want to add is that President Xi Jinping defines China modernization very broadly. So it is not just about income distribution; it's also about sustainability and self-sufficiency. We just talked about the geopolitical risk China is facing. So I think there is a need to reduce reliance on imports when it comes to core technologies, and this gives rise to the investment theme of the so-called little giants. I like that term, little giants. What what are they? How many are there? Well, there are thousands of companies that belong to little giants, according to the definition of the government, and there are hundreds of them that are listed. So, what exactly are little giants? They are small, mid-sized companies that the state has identified to have an edge on a particular niche area. So, whether that's the new energy technology, or semiconductor, or automation. Or simply any core technologies that the government wants to focus on developing, and I expect that、uh, favorable policies have will be shifting to support those companies after moving away from the internet sector. And as I mentioned, there are several hundreds of the companies that are already listed. So this is actually a key takeaway for investors. Now, finally, talking about sustainability, that generally refers to environmental protection. Mark and I, we both talked about this theme many, many times before. So,、uh, I think we don't need to repeat all the details. Also, we just published a next generation report with all the details. But in this call, the key point that I do want to highlight is that the Chinese renewables and EV companies do not only benefit from the local policy tailwinds because they are also dominating the global supply chains. Therefore, these companies are actually serving global demand. Richard, I'd like to go back to the. Congress, and as I said, the new leadership was unveiled on Sunday. So there's seven members of the Politburo Standing Committee. That's the highest governing body in the land. Can you tell us、uh, about the key people? I think before that, I think it's fair to say that market participants, in particular the foreign investors, had hoped for more diversified standing committee before the Congress. And if they did have that expectation, they're clearly disappointed. 
because the other six members besides President Xi Jinping, basically President Xi Jinping's uh, allies, and most of them worked with him before in his early stage of career. So I'll give you two or three examples. Li Qiao is currently the Shanghai Party Secretary. Uh, he used to work with President Xi Jinping in Zhejiang. And then Cai Qi, he's the Beijing Party Secretary right now. And he used to work with President Xi Jinping in Fujian and Zhejiang provinces. Also, there is another guy who's called Ding Xuexiang, who's the de facto chief of staff of President Xi Jinping. And he has worked with him for almost 15 years now. And others are believed to have closer personal ties with him. So they're his friends, correct me if I'm wrong, or at least his allies. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> well, I think there are both positive and negative ways of looking at it. Uh, domestic investors generally see this as a more balanced or, or positive uh, thing in which this should lead to more efficient decision-making process when members of the cabinet basically share similar views on different things. But on the other hand, foreign investors that I spoke to seem to be much more critical because they worry that there may not be enough checks and balances. And that could increase the possibility of very, very bold reforms coming through, just like what we saw in 2021. Well, I guess one, I don't know if it's a bold reform, but one thing I do want to ask you is zero COVID, because there was no indication that's going to be lifted in the Congress, not any speech or communication that I saw. But I just read an item uh, this morning in Thailand Shu, which is a website that's owned by some of the big companies, Haitong Securities, Lenovo, anyway. The news story was that six ministries and departments have jointly issued a document urging that the restrictions for cross-border business travel be basically loosened. So there's talk that the quarantine for people going to China, business people, I guess, would be cut to two days in a hotel, five days at home, and that would be less than the 10 days that you have to spend in quarantine now. What do you think about that? Yeah, I saw that, Mark, and I think it's very interesting changes. You do? Well, it wasn't the only thing I saw. Bank of America put out a note, I think it was yesterday. I'm just going to quote The Economist. Now, with power more concentrated at the top, the decision on the COVID zero policy hinges even more on President Xi's views. And we think the completion of the party congress will enable the top leadership to relax COVID curbs sooner than the market expects. And then, then another thing, Richard, I just want to point out, I saw in the paper this morning, China Southern Airlines are resuming uh, their international flights. I think they're in Guangzhou, aren't they? So they're starting New York and Bangkok and a whole bunch of other places. So those are just a few anecdotes and opinions. But when we put them all together, what do you think? Could we be on the verge of the end of zero COVID? Thanks for bringing that up, uh, Mark. This is something that I indeed want to discuss uh, in this podcast. We do have the view that the official stance of zero COVID policy will be maintained for quite a while, probably until spring next year. But I think here and there, we will start seeing some relaxation when it comes to the actual implementation of that policy on the ground. And I think what you mentioned are just good examples, and that should definitely benefit the reopening place in the market. And Interesting enough, when President Xi Jinping complimented the zero COVID policy in his opening speech last Sunday, it simply reset the entire market expectation of a reopening to almost, I would say, zero. But ironically, the low expectation will lower the bar for any positive surprises in case the market realizes that the on the ground 
implementation actually has been gradually relaxed, notwithstanding what's being said. So I think investors may actually consider this idea as one of their short-term trade. Anyway, Mark, let me ask you a question. What do you think foreigners would think if the zero COVID indeed is lifted? Oh, I think they would be surprised, actually shocked, because there's such a small number of people who believe that's going to happen. And so the market would go up, but I think it's only a short-term positive because there's a big geopolitical overlay that's become increasingly obvious and I think deeply impacts the way that many foreign investors decide to allocate into Asia. And uh, we saw a taste of it yesterday, or we got a taste of it, when the U.S. Justice Department charged six Chinese citizens of working on behalf of the Chinese government to recruit U.S. citizens as sources. You mentioned earlier that the U.S. government has put limits on semiconductor sales into China. But the biggest thing I think that foreign investors are are increasingly worried about, I really hate to say it, but, but it's war. And there's a perception that if there was a move on Taiwan, that basically it would be very bad, of course. And, and there's increasingly a perception that it might happen sooner than the market had previously been thinking it could. For example, the military section of the Communist Party's constitution was amended to include a clause calling on the party to resolutely oppose and contain Taiwan independence, and it promoted unification of the motherland. And I think in response to that, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said last week, I'm going to quote him, there's been a change in approach from Beijing toward Taiwan, the fundamental decision that the status quo is no longer acceptable. Beijing's determined to pursue reunification on a much faster timeline. So that's Blinken saying that. And the chief of U.S. naval operations, Admiral Gilday, said last week, I'm going to quote him, what we've seen over the past 20 years is that they have delivered on every promise they've made earlier than they said they were going to deliver on it. So when we talk about 2027, that has to be a 2022 or potentially 2023 window. And by the way, what he means is, according to the CIA, President Xi ordered the military in China to be able to to control Taiwan by 2027. So the admiral saying it could be much earlier than that. And Taiwan's own defense minister said yesterday that there's this new central military commission in China, which is staffed by people who are familiar with Taiwan. They have technology backgrounds, and that led him to believe that the Chinese army is going to be adopting a tougher strategy in dealing with Taiwan in the future. Right. Mark, let me ask you, what if that does happen? Let's say we see the worst case scenario, which is a war. What do you think the markets would do? Well, Richard, I think pretty much every market would go down 30% in the world, including the S&P, if there was a war between China and, and the U.S. and its allies. But then, unless it was a nuclear war, I think the S&P would bounce back. And the reason why foreigners are selling China is they don't feel the same way about the Chinese market, because that's where the theater of war will be, assuming it's purely a conventional war. And also, they're worried they might not be able to get their money out. Just look what happened to investors who owned Russian stocks and bonds. They got trapped. So that's the most extreme event. More generically, I'd say there's an impression forming among foreigners that if common prosperity is the core economic agenda, 
then it's just going to be harder for companies to grow their profits than it was before. And there'll be less, I don't know what you want to call it, tolerance or interest for allowing foreigners to make money in the country too. And I might also add that they're a little bit more worried about the economy than they were, say, a month ago. And they've noticed the renminbi is below 7.3 for the first time since 2010. So they're also wondering about, you know, the economy and currency. Uh, U.S. government debt now gives you 150 basis points more than Chinese government debt. So there's not a whole lot of incentive to own the renminbi. Richard, I've got one last question for you, very simply. What do you see the Chinese market doing from here on? In the near term, we are indeed mindful of foreigners selling. Uh, that creates pressure for the market for the reasons that we already discussed. And meanwhile, we are also seeing some signs of capitulation in the market, possibly as some of these funds face some kind of redemption or even liquidation pressure. So that seems to be some forced selling going on. And I think stocks that have higher foreign exposure may see more downside risk in the near term, possibly in the next couple of weeks. So on the market perspective, some statistics suggest that the U.S. institutional investors alone already own 25% of the Chinese ADRs, 16% of the Hong Kong stocks, and 1% of Asia. So I think that is definitely a risk that we need to monitor very, very closely. And then as we get out of this very, very severe correction, we will emphasize that we like specific themes and sectors and stocks, but not to make an active bet on the overall direction of the Chinese market. And I would say this setup could be very, very similar to what we saw in 2019 or earlier will be 2012 to 2015 in the Chinese offshore market. And we've already discussed the three themes that we like which I will repeat here, environment, mass consumption, and smart or high-end manufacturing. In particular, we think that environment stocks may still sell off in the next few weeks, probably until the year-end. But I think when we really get to the year-end, we will actively ask our audience uh, to consider buying on dips because possibly we'll see an attractive level open up to own these stocks for longer-term investments. Well, I guess you think the environmental stocks would sell off more because the foreigners own more of them. Many thanks, Richard. Appreciate your insights. And I think we should leave it at that for now. So this is Mark Matthews and Richard Tang. We're signing off. We wish you a great week ahead and we'll be speaking with you again next Tuesday. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.